Well, we're nearing the end of uh, our short journey through Ruth. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ruth chapter number 4. Ruth chapter number 4, in a moment we'll begin with uh, verse number 13 of Ruth chapter number 4. When you look at the book of Ruth, only four chapters, most of the time we overlook it in the Old Testament, but it's, it's really a fascinating little book. But when you read it, there are three things, I think, that, that we need to keep in mind. Three very important things that this book teaches. First of all, it teaches us about the grace of God. The grace of God to undeserving people. In, in the book of Ruth, you have, you have Ruth, who is a Moabitess, has really, in terms of her nationality and her heritage and her upbringing, she has absolutely no part nor right in uh, the, the plan of God for his people, the nation of Israel. And yet God shows grace to her and brings her into the fold. If you want to find yourself in the book of Ruth, look no further than the person of Ruth. Later on, she marries Boaz. Now, uh, Boaz, you probably already know, his mother was Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute who, who, who uh, turned into a spy for Joshua and the Crusaders when they came into the Holy Land. Rahab was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite who resided in uh, Jericho. And so when Boaz and Ruth married and they gave birth to a son named Obed, now get this, Obed is only one quarter Jewish. He's three quarters non-Jewish, that is Gentile. And yet he's in the family tree of Jesus. That's called grace. Grace speaks loudly in the book of Ruth. The second thing that also speaks loudly is it's what we call the providence of God. We don't use the word providence all that much. By providence, we mean the overarching plan of God. Even though we don't hear the word God mentioned that much in Ruth, and even though we don't hear God uh, actually speaking to people, you can't help but see his, his DNA throughout the book of Ruth, his overarching plan for people, even though they didn't realize that they were part of a, a much larger scheme that was going on. Scheme, I'm using that word in, in a positive way. Same thing is true for us. Uh, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter how much we, we look around us and we think that life is falling apart, we are part of a plan. And there is no crisis, there is no conflict, there is no unexpected surprise that will fall upon you that will be a surprise to God. He knew about it long ago, long before it happened, and it is simply part of his plan, and our goal is to trust him in the midst of that crisis that is part of his plan. So you have the grace of God, and you have the plan of God or providence. And then third, the third thing that's important about the book of Ruth is that Ruth is, is put in the Old Testament where it is to show the background and the family tree of David, who would be the second king of Israel and the greatest king that Israel ever had. Ruth uh, will end up being the great, great grandmother of King David. And for you and I who are Christians, what's even more significant is that, that this Boaz and Ruth 
and their son Obed and his son Jesse and his son David, when you keep going right down the family tree, you're going to end up with a fellow whose name is pretty significant to us. I think you spell it J-E-S-U-S. And so what we're dealing with here in these four simple chapters is an earth-shaking plan that, that culminates in the very birth of our Lord. And so it's, it's fitting that we conclude this book today uh, with a chapter that catapults us into Christmas with the genealogy of David. What I like most about Ruth is uh, the, the book tells a story about real life. Uh, you've heard me say until you're probably tired of hearing me say it. I, I'm sick of fake. I'm sick of superficial Christianity. I'm sick of a, a, a projection of Christianity that says, hey, all you got to do is have Jesus and your whole life will just work out. I'm sick of that. Because that's not my experience. And it's not the experience of most people I know. Now, it, it may be the experience of some folks. Some folks somehow... They don't really deserve it. But somehow, they have, they have it seems, a pie-in-the-sky life. And, and, and they're, they're the ones that you most often will, will hear. Well, if you just give your life to Jesus, it'll just, everything will be great. You won't lose your job. You'll always get a promotion. Your marriage will always be sweet and fuzzy and peachy. And you'll always have those butterfly feelings of being in love. And your kids will never rebel. I don't know who that person is. And Ruth paints a picture of life that's not that warm, fuzzy, peachy pie in the sky. It paints a picture of life as it really is, even for God's people. I want to talk with you finally this morning about hope in the real world. Ruth chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Does it strike you as odd that the community named this boy? They name your children too. Make no mistake. You might call them one name, but the community helps raise them. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. A lot of people I know have gotten into some form of 
blogging. Isn't that an interesting thing? When you think about terms that uh, 10 years ago we'd never heard of, and now they have become part of the regular landscape of American life. Even if you are not, if, if you don't have a blog, or if you're not participating in a blog, you are familiar with the term. You've heard it. Recently, I was reading some different blogs. A blog is kind of like an internet journal or diary. It's an online journal. People just write their thoughts. I'm a little fearful of doing that uh, because some of the thoughts that I sometimes think, they don't need to be published. They really don't need to be said, but a lot of folks, they, they, they go online and they, they blog their thoughts. Recently, I came across the online readings, uh, writings of a, a lady blogger. I don't know who she was, don't know her name. But here's what she said. It caught me interestingly. She said, quote, As I've learned many times over the last two years, life in the real world isn't always peachy. She goes on to say, Recently I've had to deal with some pretty severe disappointment in my life. I had to deal with some pretty severe disappointment at work. And instead of making lemonade with the fruit given to me, I chucked them back at the company's face and set off to find a new grocer. Wow. I'll spare everyone that hasn't heard me personally vent on this subject, the gruesome details leading up to the corporate breakup. Needless to say, though, for me, it was messy. Life in the real world. What I love about Ruth is the book of Ruth paints life in the real world. And there's much to learn from the book of Ruth. There's much, even in the, these five sermons, there, there's much that we have learned uh, from Ruth. For instance, we've learned that sometimes there is no bread in the house of bread. You remember in chapter 1, you had Elimelech and Naomi they are, they're boys, Malan and Killian. And evidently, Malan and Killian were not very healthy, if their names are any indication. Their names mean sick and weak. And there's a good chance, uh, by, by virtue of those names, that they were not that healthy. But they were in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a, a, a name that means house of bread. And all of a sudden, there was a famine in the house of bread. You remember that? There was no bread in the house of bread. There was no bread where there had, it had been known for centuries that there had been bread. And they had to leave, or felt like they had to leave, and go across the Dead Sea into Moab because there was no bread in the house of bread. And they hadn't been there very long before Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And then the boys, they marry Moabite women, not Jewish women. And although the text doesn't say it, there had to be some mixed emotions in Naomi about those boys marrying those Moabite girls. And then after 10 years of childless marriage, which again had to be another uh, disappointment for Naomi, the boys die and Naomi is left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And then finally, she and one of those daughters-in-law, Ruth, they head back to Bethlehem. But for Naomi, thus far in her life, she had found out that sometimes there is no bread in the house of bread. Sometimes there is no joy, even where there ought to be joy. I think we need to admit that as Christians. Why can't we admit that? 
that sometimes, even in the Christian life, where there ought to be joy, sometimes there is none. Then, some, then another thing we found out in Ruth is that sometimes in order to find God, you have to be willing to work in the leftovers. You remember that? Chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth, they come back to Bethlehem, and they come back empty. So empty that Naomi doesn't even want the people to call her by her name, Naomi. Just call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. They get into Bethlehem about the time that the barley harvest has started. Uh, bread has returned to the house of bread. That's good news, except for the fact that Naomi and Ruth came home not only hungry, but they came home broke. And Naomi evidently is of such an age that she's unable to work. And so Ruth goes out and she gets a job in a field working from early in the morning till late in the evening and she is picking the leftover wheat. She's working in the leftovers. But it's in those leftovers that she comes face to face with God's plan for her life. I submit to you that as far as this story can tell, if she doesn't go in those leftovers, she may not find God's plan for her life. What are you willing to do? Maybe I should put it a different way. What are you not willing to do that God wants you to do? And it's in that thing that you're not willing to do that God says, that's where you're going to find me. Sometimes in order to find God, you have to be willing to work the leftovers. And then the final, uh, not, not the, the final principle we found from Ruth, but another principle is that, that life is dotted with glitches. Those glitches are unexpected problems. I preached on that, what, two weeks ago, whatever, and then this past week there was a glitch, a computer glitch. Do you remember that? Did you hear about it this week? A computer glitch in the, uh, the government's computer for the airports, traffic control, and all of a sudden for about four or five hours, everything nationwide was in chaos. A glitch. Well, for most of us... <clears throat> That glitch didn't pose a whole lot of problem. Probably posed a little problem maybe for David or uh, may have posed a problem for Rodney or somebody who was flying out. But for most of us, it really didn't pose that much of a problem. But maybe you ran into a glitch that didn't make it to the national news this week. Maybe you found a lump in a breast or maybe you got word that the company was moving or maybe you got word that that pink slips were on the way sometime between thanksgiving and christmas i talked with a lady in our church just this past wednesday she was coming by and i said hey how you doing i said how's your husband doing she says funny you should ask yesterday he got laid off his job thanksgiving's a terrible time to get laid off you know that it's a terrible time Life is full of glitches. Well, in this final chapter, there, there are more principles that I think we need to focus in on to help us live a life that uh, includes God. I hope that that's our goal, is to live lives that include God, live lives that, that make a way for His plan for us, no matter what that plan may entail. And so there are three final lessons from the book of Ruth that I want to leave with you this morning. 
The first lesson is this. There is always a bigger picture than the one we see. There is always a bigger picture than the one we see. Now let's think about the, the, the picture that Naomi saw. In chapter 1, all she could see was she had two uh, unhealthy children and she was living in a land where there was a famine. That's all she saw. We got to leave. They up, they leave, they go to Moab. All she could see there is a foreign land with foreign people, but at least they're, they're well fed. But then she loses her husband. And then all she can see is, I'm left here to, raise, to finish raising two boys. My husband, Elimelech, the, 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 the apple of my eye, the joy of my heart, the man of my dreams, he dies, and here I am left with nothing in a strange land. Should have stayed in Bethlehem. Her boys go and they marry. I don't know how it happened. Usually there were arranged marriages, but this couldn't have been an arranged marriage because Naomi would not have arranged for her boys to marry Moabite women. Maybe they were a little rebellious. I don't know. Who knows? But somehow they, they started up relationships with two Moabite women. My guess is, and I can't prove this by the text, my guess is that Naomi had some talks with them. Boys, don't you think we ought to go back to Bethlehem? They have some girls over there. No, Mom. We've given our hearts to these girls. I love that Orpah. I love that Ruth. I think we ought to stay here. And all of a sudden, think about all that Naomi can see. All she can see is she's in a strange land. All she can see is that she lost her husband. And now all she can see is that her boys want to marry girls that she doesn't want them to marry. It's all she can see. But what she can't see that is working all throughout like a thread that goes throughout these four chapters is that God is working all the time and he is painting a picture. She's just part of, of, of a picture. If, if you look at the whole book of Ruth as a jigsaw puzzle and all of Naomi's life, including all the glitches, all the problems, all the unexpected conflicts, all the disappointments, all of those can be encapsulated on one small piece of that huge puzzle. Let's say it's a thousand-piece puzzle. And everything about her life can be encapsulated on one of those 1,000 pieces. There is a picture that is larger than the one we see. For instance, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now keep your finger, keep your index finger in Ruth chapter 4. But as you have your index finger in Ruth chapter 4, flip over to Matthew chapter 1. Now keep in mind the last uh, verses of Ruth chapter 4, which go like this. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Simon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. Those are the last verses of Ruth chapter 4. Now listen to Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz. Oh, there is a little thing added right there, whose mother was Rahab. Not an insignificant addition. 
Boaz, the father of Obed, oh, there's another addition, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. With the exception of those two significant insertions about Rahab and Ruth, the text is identical to the, to the verses that end Ruth chapter 4. Now, Ruth chapter 4 gives us the family tree or the beginning of the family tree of King David. But Matthew chapter 1, you know, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel describes events that happen 1,000 years after the events of the book of Ruth. And here Matthew is including these same people in the genealogy. Whose genealogy is it? Whose family tree is it? It's the family tree of Jesus. There's a bigger picture. It's hard for me to force myself to remember that when I'm going through a really dark time, there is more to the story than what I'm going through. The jigsaw puzzle includes a, a, a 999 other pieces that God is putting together. There's always a bigger picture. The second lesson we learn in these closing verses is this. We can never say that God is not working. God is always working. He's always working. Um, I don't know why, and I don't know if it's good or bad, but in my own uh, Christian walk, and especially, I'd say, within the last eight or nine years, I have... Um, become more honest. Now by that I don't mean I was dishonest beforehand, but I mean I've become more honest with God. When I talk with God, sometimes I say things that make people cringe if they, if they hear me talking to God in the way that I do. I, I've been angry at God, and I don't hide it from Him anymore. I've been disappointed by God, and I don't hide that disappointment. Now, I've been grateful to God, and I am grateful to God, and thankful to God, and, I, and worshipful of God, and, and, and those things bring me great fulfillment and great pleasure, but in the past few years, I have become very, very honest with God. But during those times of honesty, which, which I, I'm concluding have been good for me, I've again had to force myself to remember that even in my anger, even in my occasional disappointment, I have to remember that this God of mine has never clocked out. He has never become AWOL. He has never said, 5 o'clock, heading home. He is a 24-7, seven days a week, 31 days a month, 365 a year God. And he's always working. Thomas Merton, the, the great prayer warrior, wrote a prayer in which he said this. In fact, this, is, this has become known as the Merton Prayer, Thomas Merton. He says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. 
nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you, the desire to please you, does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Thomas Merton. God is always working. Final lesson, number three. The important thing for you and me is to make sure that the decisions that we make in this life put us in the family of God. I think there's a tragic decision that was made. I, I touched on it last Sunday night, but there was a tragic decision made by an unnamed individual in the last two chapters of Ruth. In Jewish culture, there was this law. You find it in uh, Deuteronomy 25 that said, if a brother is married and the brother dies, then his brother has a responsibility to take the widow as his wife and they will bear a child in the name of the deceased brother. If, if the brother who dies has no brothers, then it went to the next of kin. This law was applied in the case of Ruth and Naomi. That's how Boaz came into the picture. He was a relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and therefore he was uh, perhaps eligible to be either Naomi's or Ruth's husband. The problem was there was someone, there was one person, one someone, unnamed, who was in line before Boaz. And he had the first option of what to do with Ruth. And so Boaz went to this man and he told him the situation. And the long and short of it is this man said, uh, this might affect my future. I don't want to take her. You take her. It seems minor. That decision seems minor. But ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. That one decision not to take her, in effect, took this man, this unnamed man, out of the direct line that led to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, in effect, took him out of the direct line of the family of God. I doubt that he ever realized the gravity of that decision. I said earlier, if you want to find yourself in the book of Ruth, look no further than Ruth. Maybe that's not quite true. Maybe you need to look not only at Ruth, but also at this unnamed man. Because like him, we all have the opportunity to make a decision. And that decision will determine whether we are in the family or out. And, of course, I'm talking about the decision to invite Jesus Christ into your life. It was a tragic, tragic decision that this man made. Whenever I lived up in Cumming, Georgia, up until the year 2000, for the 20 years 
um, up to 2000, I had been gathering information to write a history book on uh, the Baptist Association in which I grew up, the Hightower Baptist Association. It's a very unique association. Don't have time to go into its uniqueness here. But I wanted to write a history. I have, uh, I have actual books of the minutes of the Hightower Association from, from 1835 in, in my library at home. Uh, very valuable uh, for someone who cares about that part of the state. One of the three founding per members of that association was a fellow by the name of Richard Phillips. His wife was Clorinda Rainwater. They called him Uncle Dickie Phillips. He was the moderator for the first three years, and I was fascinated by him. He was a missionary. Um, a lot of the history that I compiled focused in on uh, Uncle Dickie Phillips. Uh, in the year 1835, uh, Richard Phillips founded a church on the Forsyth Hall County line on a little road called, now called Bethel Church Road, but he founded a church up there called Bethel Baptist Church in 1835. In that same year, he founded a church in South Forsyth County uh, near the border uh, of, uh, that goes into Alpharetta called Bethlehem Baptist Church. That was 1835. Those churches are across the county, Forsyth County from each other. In the day that uh, Richard Phillips lived, it would have taken him on horseback three hours to go from Bethlehem to Bethel one way. And he founded both of those churches in the same year. Pretty phenomenal. What's even more phenomenal is those are not the only churches he founded that year. He was busy. Uh, by the way, Bethlehem Baptist Church was the first church I ever pastored. was there for four years. So I was fascinated with Richard Phillips for 20 years. Last year, I was doing some family tree. I wanted to find out my own family tree. And so I subscribed to Ancestry.com and RoopsWeb.com and it can really become addicted, addicting, family tree stuff. If you've been into it, you know it. I started going back. I knew my parents, my grandparents, and their parents, but then it started getting fuzzy, and I started looking at census records and county records and marriage certificates and death certificates and, and, and war journals. I can't tell you how happy I was when about 13 months ago I came up on sixth generation before me and I found the name Richard and Clorinda Phillips absolutely thrilled me at the same time I felt guilty because I had not lived up to the standard that Richard Phillips had set but he's my great 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 grandfather I'm in his family But what's greater than that for me is that on the Sunday night, first Sunday night in August 1968, I became a part of Jesus' family. And that means a lot more. Are you a part of Jesus' family? Have you invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Do you know him? Do you know that if you died right now, you'd go to heaven because of your relationship with Jesus? Matt's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in an invitation. If you're here and you've never accepted Christ, this is the time for you to come. Come into this altar. If you don't know what to do, we'll help you with that. We'll help you make the most important decision of your life, inviting Christ into your life. 
What about, you say, Jimmy, I'm, I'm, I've, I've already been saved. There's nothing really for me to do today, right? Well, maybe, maybe. There's some folks here who probably have nothing to do during this invitation. Probably fewer than we think. Some folks need to join this church. Some folks have some issues that they just need to take before the Lord. It's not sin issues necessarily, just issues. And maybe you need to come and just lay them on this altar. Maybe it is a sin issue. I don't know. It's none of my business. But it is God's business. There was an unnamed man one day who had an opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, he wasted that opportunity. Right now, in the next five minutes, you're going to have an opportunity. Don't waste this opportunity. Make it count. Make it count with regard to your relationship in the family of God. Will you do that? As the congregation stands, if you need to come, I want you to come as we sing. Go ahead, let's stand.